Uh, Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? And our scripture for this morning comes from uh, Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear, who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, in the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book. Send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, over the last few months, weeks, there has been much to disagree about in our world. Uh, Masks, Politics, a pandemic, which is why I'm glad uh, this morning, in the midst of all we have to disagree about, there's finally something every one of us, regardless of our background, can agree on this morning, which is 2020 is the year of the apocalypse. (laughs) Uh, And if that makes you nervous about where I'm going, let me just prove this to you. Just run through a number of things that have already happened in 2020, that on January 8th, Brexit happened. Harry and Meghan announced they were stepping down from Buckingham 
palace. And listen, you all know how much I care about the British family. But that should have been a sign to us that 2020 was going to be an awful year. Uh, then in April, we found out uh, that murder hornets, murdering hornets have invaded the United States, which hornets are bad enough, murdering hornets on top of uh, that. Uh, a month ago, I don't know if you saw this, NASA announced that an, there's a, about a 1% chance an asteroid could hit Earth the day before the 2020 election. And uh, experts assure us that there's very little chance that it will actually hit the Earth, and if it does, it won't do much damage. Others of us would see an uh, asteroid uh, liquidating the Earth the day before the 2020 election as a sign of God's gracious presence in our, our world. Uh, but the event that made it clear in 2020 more than any, that this is the year of the apocalypse, that God's work on Earth is done, was, of course, this moment. The Chiefs, our Super Bowl champions... We can shut it down, right? The earth, the God's work on earth has finally been completed. I, I still listen, I say all this tongue in cheek, but, but listen, we live in, in very trying times. The run through uh, the reality of the world in which you and I live right now is that over the last several weeks, some of our greatest cities have been subject to, to, to rooting, uh, looting, rioting, burning, destruction of neighborhoods and businesses that will take decades to recover from. Uh, we live in a time of, of deep racial tension, which whatever your politics are, I would hope that as a Christian that would cause you lament and sorrow. And of course, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, the studies have shown over the course of the, the first seven, eight months of 2020, uh, the United States alone has experienced 200,000 excess deaths. That means year over year we would expect about 200,000 less people to have died than who have actually died. And that's, that's a lot of death. And so the question becomes for us, what should a church do and be and respond to the moment you and I, that we're living through currently? And to be clear, this is not the first time the church has been in a difficult position in history. At the end of the first century, there were only a few thousand Christians scattered throughout the world. And the world's superpower of that day, Rome, was increasingly turning its attention to Christians to begin to persecute them, something they had not done to any other religious minority, yet they were turning their attention on Christians. The church was in trouble. Like today, I think the church is in trouble. David Kinneman, a researcher on religion in the U.S. with the Barna Group, recently said that looking at the, the trends of Christianity in the United States, the trends of decline in particular, he said that we are headed for a massive decline in church Christianity over the coming decades, and it's too late. There's nothing we can do about it. I think he's wrong. There is something we can do about it. We can read Revelation. The Revelation was written just at a moment when the church was a small, persecuted minority, but was, in the coming decades, going to become a worldwide, multi-ethnic, multi-class, rich and poor movement that the world has never, had never seen before and has never seen since. The Revelation was written right at the outset of explosive growth for the church. And there are lots of reasons for that, but I think there's a couple of things at the heart of Revelation. There are two things that are, are revealed in Revelation. I mean, actually, there are a lot of things that are revealed in Revelation, a lot of weird things that are revealed in Revelation. But in the midst of all of the strange details, there are two 
sort of guide, uh, guardrails that are going to govern our series in this book. Two things that will set the, the agenda for at least what we do on Sunday mornings for how we approach this book. The two most prominent things revealed in Revelation. The first thing revealed in Revelation is Jesus. That's where the, the book starts. The, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what this book is about. And the word revelation there, it, it, it's literally the Greek word apocalypse. Um, so apocalypse is not actually the, how probably most of us think of it when we hear that term. It's not, uh, it's not some world cataclysmic event that happens like, uh, like Harry and Meghan leaving Buckingham Palace. right? It's not, that's not what an apocalypse is. An apocalypse, all it is, is an unveiling. It's a revealing. And what's revealed in this book more than anything else is Jesus. Who he is, what he's going to do in this world is uncovered, is, un- un- is revealed for us. And right in the first chapter, uh, John sort of lays out what's, what's going to be revealed for us about Jesus in pretty broad categories, which is where we're going to focus our attention this morning, around three things revealed of Jesus, which are, are listed in verse 5. Jesus is the ruler of kings on earth, he's the faithful witness, and he is the firstborn from the dead. So who is Jesus in this moment? Right, and I think it's easy for us to think of uh, Jesus on a cross or Jesus uh, with uh, with his sandals and a teacher. But right now, who Jesus is is he is the ruler of the kings on earth. He's the faithful witness. He's the firstborn from the dead. So I, I said there's two things revealed in, in Revelation. One is Jesus, and the other thing I'm going to say for the end of this sermon. We're going to focus our attention first on what is revealed about Jesus and how, how Revelation 1 kind of sets the table for the rest of the book with these categories. Jesus is the ruler of the kings on earth. He's the faithful witness. He's the firstborn from the dead. So first, Jesus is the ruler of the kings on earth. Those three things are going to be what govern our time for this morning. So Jesus is the ruler of the kings on earth. But I have to, like, we have to begin by understanding how outrageous of a statement this is for John to say this. And it's frankly ridiculous that John writes this. Because look again at verse 9, the context of when, when John writes this. Right? Jesus is the ruler of the kings on earth, which means he is the political authority in the world. And yet in verse 9 we read, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So John, he's saying two things here. One is that he is a partner with the church, the churches he's writing to, churches in that, the, uh, the realm of Asia in that day, churches he had helped pastor. He's a partner in tribulation with them, which is he's suffering with them for the gospel. Right? So he, and, and how he's doing that is, secondly, he's in prison. He's in exile on Patmos. So get, like, get a load of this. This prisoner in exile on Patmos makes the claim that the person he is serving, the person he is suffering and in prison because of, Jesus, is actually the ruler of the kings on earth. It's a ridiculous statement. But if Jesus is the ruler of the kings on earth, how are there only a few thousand Christians scattered throughout the world, all of whom uh, potentially, or most of whom, potentially facing suffering, persecution. John, in particular, is being persecuted for his faith. How can it be true that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of, on earth and all of these things be true as well? 
You see, we have to sit in the pure audacity of that statement. And, and it's hard for us because we live 2,000 years after this statement where Christianity is the largest world religion. It's on every continent. There's, or continent. There's 2 billion Christians today. But just sit in, in, in when John wrote this. He's in prison. There's only a few thousand uh, Christians throughout the world. They're all, it's a persecuted minority. And John makes the claim that the most powerful figure in the universe is Jesus. Just a stunning claim. That in Revelation, Jesus is revealed to us, not just as in the words of Tom Howard, Jesus is not just a pale Galilean. He is a towering and furious figure who will not be managed. Jesus is the ruler of the kings on earth. He is not a pale Galilean, but he is a towering and furious figure who will not be managed. He is the ruler of the kings on earth. Now let's just meditate on that together. What does that mean? How do we move that into our own day? And the first thing that should be obvious to us is this, this is a political statement. For Jesus to say he's the ruler of the kings on earth would be, I think John were writing today, he would say Jesus is the ruler of the presidents on earth. This is a political claim about Jesus. Now instantly, anytime a pastor uses the word politics, everyone gets tense. Everyone gets nervous. Which I understand, and I think I could sum that, summarize that because I remember being in high school and my pastor uh, endorsing a political candidate for president from the pulpit. And the only thing I remember about that moment is how Jesus got smaller in that moment for me. I was unimpressed. And so I think there's always this concern that whenever a pastor starts talking about politics, all they're going to do is become water carrier for some lesser political figure than Jesus. And you're right to be concerned about that. And I have zero interest in doing that. But on the flip side, the other thing is anytime Jesus begins to, to critique our politics, it's when a choice begins to, to have to be made by us. Is what's the more important political figure in my life? Jesus, the ruler of the kings on earth, or the politics that I, I ascribe to on earth? The trouble, of course, is that the John begins Revelation with a, a political claim that Jesus is the ruler of the kings on earth. And that has implications for my politics and for yours. That whoever you intend in voting, on voting for in the coming weeks, whether it's Joe Biden, whether it's Donald Trump, whether it's some third-party candidate, Jesus claims absolute authority over that person. And he claims the authority to judge that person for the words they speak and for the, policy, the policies they try to advance in their life. He is their ruler. And Jesus demands of you and me that our politics be more shaped by him than by any other voice in this world, including mine, including me as pastor. The voice that should most determine our political agendas as Christians on this earth is the ruler of the kings on earth. And the reason why Jesus got smaller for me when my uh, pastor endorsed a political candidate the, all those years ago was that the moment the church begins to be a water carrier for a political candidate, we cease being servants of another kingdom, which is actually the most powerful kingdom in the world. In the words of, of Peter Lightheart, I like what he, he wrote in Against Christianity, as soon as the church appears, it becomes clear to any alert politician that worldly politics is no longer the only game in town. The introduction of the church into any city means that the city has a challenger within its walls. 
That's precisely what John is doing in announcing to Rome when he says explicitly at the beginning of Revelation, Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is the ruler of the kings on earth. So let's apply this. What does this mean for our our politics? I think what it means is you and I as Christians in our world of earthly politics, we should be people of passionate indifference. Passionate indifference. That we should be passionate. We are representatives of a true king and the true kingdom that will one day come in and rule. Uh, Our king will one day rule this world with perfect justice and peace and righteousness. And as Christians, we know that the most important political event in history is not in two months. In four years in two months. The most important political event in history was when Rome crucified a no-name peasant Galilean And put him on a cross, and that peasant, pale Galilean, died, was buried, and was raised to new life, and was revealed to us in Revelation 1 as the ruler of the kings on earth. Why John says what he says, or why Jesus says what he says to John at the end of the chapter. John gives us this, this high introduction, and then he gives us a moment of him seeing Jesus. In verses 12 through 16, and, and he, falls at his feet, he falls at the feet of Jesus as though dead, in total awe and reverence. And Jesus lays his hand on John and says, don't be afraid, I am the first and the last. And that statement, I am the first and the last, or earlier it's, it's I'm the, al- the alpha, the omega, that, that, that is a claim of ultimate sovereignty in the universe. Jesus is saying, everything that happens in the world is under my vision and sovereignty. Jesus is in control of history, which should give us passion to go and, 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 and work for justice in this world or, or to, to hope for a, a better reality you and I live in because we know the true kingdom is coming and one day this will be a world of perfect justice, righteousness, and peace. So we should passionately engage in the world around us. And yet we should also be indifferent as we, are, as we are passionate. And I think the best example I've seen of this is, uh, is the Christian brothers and sisters I've gotten to know in China over the last few years. That, that's the primary global partner we live with and as we began, or we work with here in, in Shawnee. And, and as we began, as we get to, get to know those pastors, I was always really interested in how they were thinking about their times politically. Uh, President Xi, the potential coming persecution. And what I always found was when I would ask them about persecution or politics, I was, it was like I was asking them something they just didn't care much about. Right? I wanted to know, hey, could the, could the Communist Party be overthrown? Right? Could there be freedom coming for, for Chinese? What are your thoughts on persecution? And they had thoughts on those. It's not that they didn't think about those things, but they were not front of mind. They had such deep confidence in the gospel and Jesus and his kingdom. They were, they were working on the things the church is called to be working on. And so President Xi and the Chinese Communist Party is an afterthought to them. And even this morning, I got an update from Chinese house churches. And one update was a Chinese mom's group had all been arrested and, and brought in for questioning. So they're equivalent of mops. I mean, imagine that we, our mops group meets at a park and the police show up and take them to prison. That's what happened in China. That was one update. The other update was a pastor saying, help us not to be focused on President Xi and the politics around us, but be focused on the call to spread the gospel and build the church. That's very different political engagement than I see in our own context. And certainly it's different. We have the right to vote. That's that's very different. 
But there's, there's almost an indifference there because they, they recognize the kingdom of God is coming. Nothing can stop it. And so we're going to be at work in that realm. There's this confidence in the fact that Jesus is the ruler of the kings on earth. And so there's an indifference to earthly politics. But that leads to a question, and a question that early Christians would have obviously had, and I think probably if if you're thinking this out with me, you're going to have as well, which is, is how can Jesus be the ruler of the kings on earth and so much bad stuff happen? Right? How can Jesus be the ruler of the kings on earth? He's the ruler of President Xi in China, and yet President Xi is persecuting Christians. How can that be true? How can Jesus be the ruler of the kings on earth and there be so much suffering, so much that is, is just sad? And we'll come back to that question, but I don't want that question to dampen. And, and listen, John was more aware of all of those things than you, and I, uh, than you and I are. He was in prison suffering for his faith. And yet John starts Revelation by making the claim, Jesus is the most important political authority in the world. He is the ruler of the kings on earth. That's first. So Jesus is that. He's the ruler of kings on earth. Second, Jesus is the faithful witness. Now there's a question all of us have to wrestle with if we decide to take up life and follow Jesus, which is at what point does my faithfulness to Jesus cease? Is there a point? All right, so just apply this to sports for a minute. Uh, Chiefs fans had to wait 50 years for a Super Bowl victory. Um, And how many fans at some point, you know, just thought to themselves, you know, I'm really tired of losing to the Indianapolis Colts in the playoffs. It's time to, let's just cut our losses. Uh, Those of you who don't know me, I'm from Indianapolis. There's a little bit of, there's a little bit of underhandedness in that, uh, in that shot. But listen, I'm a Cubs fan, so it was 108 years between titles. Like at some point, you just think, listen, like the last time uh, the Cubs won the World Series, the Titanic had not even been built and sunk yet. This is just time to give up, right? Like 108 years between, at what point do you just cut your losses? And that's a question at the front of Revelation, is at what point do you cut your losses with Jesus? Because the cost of following him in the first century was enormous. That would you stop following Jesus if he cost you your reputation? That people began to look at you as weird or strange because you follow this first century Galilean person who claimed to be Messiah? Would you stop following Jesus if he cost you money? Either because he expects you to give a lot of it away or because you, you, had, you couldn't get a promotion because of your faith. Or you maybe had to quit your job or call out something happening in your business because it, was, it lacked integrity. Would you stop following Jesus if you had to suffer for him? Be arrested for him, face imprisonment? And more than anything, would you stop following Jesus if your life was if you had If following Jesus meant you had to die? That these are not hypothetical questions. For us, or certainly for first century Christians, they had to wrestle through these questions. And Revelation is, is a book written to people wrestling through those questions, which is why Jesus, or John begins Revelation by referring to Jesus as the faithful witness. A witness in Greek means, uh, it, that word is martus. It's the word we get martyr from. But in the original Greek, all it meant was was someone who gave witness. It was a witness. A martyr was a witness. And in in Revelation, faithful witness only refers to two people, to Jesus and to a man named Antipas in Revelation 2.13, where we read this about him. 
He's writing to a church. He says, you hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. That in Revelation, a faithful witness is someone who, who witnesses faithfully all the way to their death. And John begins by defining Jesus as our faithful witness. So faithful to us, he went to his death rather than breaking faith with us. The Christians in Revelation were wrestling with the question, will my faithfulness to Jesus mean that I die? Is my faithfulness to Jesus go all the way to my potential death? And John reminds them, that was Jesus' faithfulness to you. Jesus was faithful to you all the way to death. If you have to die for his name, it is nothing he hasn't first done for you. That Jesus' faithfulness to us persisted all the way to death. And Revelation is a book written so that we Christians will have a faithfulness to Jesus that goes all the way to death. And really, that's if, if I did give like one why of Revelation, why Revelation was written, it was written not, you know, not as a puzzle for us to solve. Or it's like we look at a newspaper, we have the Bible, it's like, how does this all fit together? Um, but a book to instruct us on how to stay faithful to Jesus all the way to our death in a culture that will want to move us away from faithfulness to Jesus in so many different ways. And so one of the challenges I have in, uh, in, in preaching through Revelation is to not lose sight of that main point in this book, which is it's, it's to reveal Jesus to us, but not just to show Jesus to us as an interesting figure that we look at in a store window, but Jesus is revealed to us so that in verse 3, we will hear and keep what is written in this book, for the time is near. Right? Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Not just so you have new information. Blessed are those who hear, who keep what is written in it. Revelation is a book written for us to keep. To obey the words of this book. All of which go to staying faithful to Jesus all the way to death. But here's the thing. In our culture, I don't know that faithfulness to Jesus is necessarily something that's... that's uh, you know, persecution, life, or death. I think oftentimes we begin to lose our faithfulness to Jesus just through distraction. Just through the many things we have uh, that can distract our mind away from Jesus. And so I'm going I'm to explain the main point of Revelation, why it's so important for us to stay faithful to Jesus, uh, by letting you into a marital disagreement between uh, Misty and I, uh, my wife. Now, listen, I love watching basketball games. And Misty does not love watching basketball games and almost never wants me to watch basketball games. Yet, if you were to ask her, Misty, do you like watching basketball? She would tell you something that's not true. She would say, yes, I love watching basketball games. Now, if you were to ask her, when was the last full basketball game you've you've watched? She can't remember that game. I can. It was 2010, over a decade ago, game six of the Western Conference Finals between the LA Lakers and Phoenix Suns. For some reason, she really liked Steve Nash. She watched the, she was a Suns fan. So it has been over 10 years since she's watched an entire basketball game, yet she would tell you that she loves watching basketball. Now, push her on that, like this obvious contradiction between the fact that it's been over a decade since you've done something and you're saying you love to do this thing that you never let your husband do. Um, but even though there's this internal contradiction, the, the reason she would give that for you is, listen, I need a reason to watch. I need a compelling story, a storyline, something that, that draws my in- interest um, into it. Now, my, my wife's complete inconsistency, uh, inc- inconsistency on this 
uh, will help us with understanding something about Revelation, which is this, that Misty is right. Watching basketball needs a storyline, which is why I love watching it. Because for me, the primary basketball I want to watch is Indiana University. And not, even though the fact that they've like, not been good for decades uh, at basketball, the reason why I'm so attached to this is that, listen, that's deeply tied into my childhood, uh, to my family, to memories I have growing up, to all of this history and tradition that's a part of the state I grew up in. So any basketball game I'm watching, there's actually this deep story underneath it that, that is what gives me interest to watch what has been a mediocre basketball program for the last 20 years. And what Revelation wants you to see is that there is more to the story of the world that's around you. There's much more happening in the world than what you see. And Revelation is that story. It's that storyline. It's the compelling explanation of what is happening around, it, around us. Just like if, if my wife had a compelling reason to ever watch a full basketball game, Revelation shows us what is compelling about Jesus that should make us open our eyes and pay attention to the world around us. That as Eugene Peterson says, and I love the way he puts this, Apocalypse opens up the chasm of reality. The reality is God. Worship or flee. The reality all around us in this moment, everything happening around us in this moment, is God. Do you see him? Are you seeking him? Are you paying attention? That's, I think the primary reason many of us quit on faithfulness to Jesus is, is not a conscious choice we make, in, in, at least in the American context. We just start paying attention to other things. Our minds, our hearts, our realities are more captured by pleasurable experiences, by earthly politics and those voices, by distractions. When, as Eugene Peter says, the reality around us is God. Worship or flee. Revelation shakes us awake and says God is on the move. He is at work. Look and see and pay attention. Jesus has been faithful to you all the way down to death. Be faithful to him. He's at work around you. He's the ruler of the kings on earth. So Jesus, the primary thing revealed in Revelation, is, is shown to us as the ruler of the kings on earth, the faithful witness, the one who gave his life for us, that we would give our lives back to him. And thirdly and finally, Jesus is, is the firstborn from the dead. In 1953, Edmund Hillary became the first person to hike to the top of the tallest summit in the world, Mount Everest, um, climbing all the way to the top of the 29,028-foot summit. It was an incredible feat that was years in the making. People were prepared for this for decades. Um, so he, he, he and uh, uh, his Sherpa were the first one to the top. But now, if you have enough money, you can pay an adventure company a lot of money to hike you to the top of Everest. Uh, in fact, there's so many people climbing Everest now. A recent New York Times article referred to climbing Everest as a zoo. There's so many people on the mountain. That what once seemed like a place no one can go to, the highest point on earth, no one is able to get, get to, is now so well-traveled, it's referred to as a zoo. There's so many people doing this. And Revelation makes a similar point about Jesus, that Jesus was the first person to climb into the realm of death and climb out. And by calling Jesus the firstborn of the dead, John is saying two things to us. That first, Jesus is not the last one who will climb out of death. 
that as Edmund Hillary opened up a path to Everest that now, with enough money, you might be able to do yourself, so Jesus has opened a door out of death and into everlasting life. That if you come to him in faith, you repent of your sin, you make him the center of your life, that, that's yours. You don't have to hire an adventure company to get out of death. You put your faith in Jesus. And second, this seems rather obvious, but must be stated. When John says Jesus is the firstborn of the dead, what he means is that Jesus is not dead. That John has an encounter with Jesus, and there's two things about this encounter. One, he says that Jesus is in the midst of the lampstands. The lampstands is an image for the church, which, which John is saying Jesus is present and alive and active in his church. But then you, hear, you see this encounter John has with Jesus. Jesus lays his right hand on him and says, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys to death and Hades. I began by, by saying that uh, Revelation has, we're going to have two guardrails for this series to hopefully keep us from getting too weird. Um, one is that the revelation is it's about Jesus. It's, a, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show us. It's, a, it's about him. It's from him. This is a revelation about Jesus. And the second guard, uh, guardrail I want to give now, which is when Jesus says, I have the keys of death and Hades, what does that mean? Uh, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, which if you're not, you should be, um, but in, in The Fellowship of the Ring, the first book, one of the most beloved characters, Gandalf, dies. And if you haven't read the books, I'm about to give away a part, sorry. Um, but it's a moment of profound, uh, a profound sadness, because he was sort of the, the powerful figure in um, the story. But then later in the third book, uh, Gandalf reappears. And he appears to Samwise Genji, one of the, the, the main characters. And Samwise's response perfectly sum, sums up what Revelation means when Jesus says, I have the keys of death in Hades. And Samwise says this to Gandalf when he sees Gandalf alive again after he died. Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? These two questions, is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? Is why we're, we're titling this series on Revelation, Everything Sad Untrue. Because when Jesus says, I have, the, I have the keys to death in Hades, he's not just making a claim that he can raise us to new life. He is making that claim, and that is the central claim of Christianity, that you and I will be raised to new life. But what Jesus is saying is he has the authority and the power over death and everything evil that was never meant to be a part of our world, Jesus holds the keys to that. And he is going to shut off the access death, destruction, and decay has to us. And this is going to take a whole sermon for, for me to explain. But I want to close by the sermon by saying this world has so much to be sad about. You know, all of us, carry with us in our bones a world that can wear us down. Death and Hades, which were never supposed to be a part of your and I experience, defines so much of our experience now. So much of our existence now. And what Jesus is saying in Revelation is that he has the keys, the, the power over those forces 
to not just one day make us happy again, but actually to undo all that death in Hades has done in our world and to make all things new. Everything that has worn us down, everything that makes us want to give up, everything that makes us want to stop being faithful to Jesus in this world, John is saying Jesus is going to undo all of that. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? Tolkien's questions from Sandwise are, are brilliant. It's not just the one day everything will get better. That's not what Revelation is saying. It's saying that, yes, everything will get better one day. But it's saying, in a sense, in one day, everything sad will, will come untrue. We're not just going to be exported to some other place. But the place you and I inhabit now will be remade to the place it was always intended to be. Because what's happened to this world? Jesus has happened to this world. That is our storyline. Right? That's our governing reality of existence, is that Jesus has happened to this world. And he is our faithful witness who is so committed to us that he died for us. Right? And, and John explains the beauty of all that means for us in this short little doxology where he, he describes Jesus as him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Right? Everything sad that you and I have experienced, also everything sad that you and I have done, that we've contributed to this world, the evil we've done, Jesus was our faithful witness who was committed to us all the way down into death. Jesus is the ruler of the kings on earth, and he nor his church play second fiddle to any political figure. They all bow and will be judged before the ruler of the kings on earth. And Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Which means if Jesus could climb to the, 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 the deepest doubt, valley of death and come out, and he's only the firstborn of the dead, then one day everything sad will come untrue. Let's pray. Father, I, I confess that so much of my own attention can be captured and captivated by things that are, are not Jesus. And so I pray as we, as we move into a time of, of, of song, of music, of communion, God, for every person in this room, probably one of those categories captures us differently. Jesus is our faithful witness, faithful to us to death. He's the ruler of the kings on earth. There is no authority that matches his. And he is the firstborn from the dead which gives us enormous hope. God, help us to sit in the person of Jesus for the next few minutes, we pray in his name. Amen. 